Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Sindra Kampoff, certified mental performance consultant, motivational speaker, and author. And I'm excited that you're here, ready to listen to episode 275 with Bill Kakmus. Now, if you know that mindset is essential to your success, then you're in the right place. Because in this podcast, we explore everything related to mindset to really help you reach your potential and be the best version of yourself. And today I interview Bill Kakmus. So let me tell you a little bit about Bill. You know, if it's on stage at a podium or in front of a camera, Bill Kakmus is hired to create it, develop it, enhance it, or fix it. So for over 30 years, Bill has coached singers, actors, anchors, talk show hosts, politicians, doctors, lawyers, CEOs, and athletes. And his clients include Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and Emmy winners. And I saw a list of his clients and I know you'll recognize some of the names, such as Lance Bass from NSYNC, Michael W. Smith, a Grammy Award winner, Lisa Reina from Days of Our Lives in Melrose Place. I could keep on listing several more. Bill has also partnered with major film studios, production companies, TV stations, and cable stations like CNN, Fox, and The Weather Channel to create productions that are unique, creative, and powerful. So as you can imagine, Bill's full resume is extensive and includes acting, writing, directing, and motivational speaking. And the reason that I had Bill on this podcast is because I really wanted to explore this idea of what a performance and talent coach and acting coach really does and the role of the mindset in these different areas of performance. In this podcast, Bill and I talk about several important mindset strategies. We talk about the key mindset strategy to help you do something no one else has done. We also talk about why 90% of your game is prep and why that's essential. He gives us the number one reason why we experience nerves. We talk about how not to care what people think of us and why that's important that we don't care about what people think about us. And the last part we talk about is how the best of the best view failure. He talks about how the best of the best high performers that they know that success is not about reaching the goal. It's about what you'll find along the way. Enjoy this podcast with Bill Katniss. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset. I'm excited today to welcome Bill Kakmus. Bill, how are you doing over there from Nashville, Tennessee? Nashville is awesome. I am awesome. Thank you for having me on. You bet. So I'm looking forward to talking to you more about um, your, you know, your work as a performance coach, a motivational speaker, a speech coach. I know you've also worked with um, people in broadcast news. So tell us a little bit about how you even got started into performance coaching. Oh man, you know, that's, uh, uh, that started when I was uh, six years old. My mother started to put me on stage because I think she lived vicarious through me, vicariously through me. She loved theater. She loved stars. And I think she wanted me to become one. So I started acting very early on and through my teens and twenties, I was a professional actor on the stage. I was classically trained. Then I went to Los Angeles to do television and film. And, and, uh, but at the same time that I was doing all of that and I enjoyed acting and I was good at it and I made money at it. But what I really 
loved was working with people, helping people, coaching people, teaching. And it was never something at the time that I thought, I want to be making money at this. I want to have this as a profession. God gave everybody something. I just happened to get that thing where I walk into a room full of crap and I think, all right, there's a pony here somewhere. All I have to do <laughs> is find the pony and clean that pony up and then all of that uh, crap will just sort of disappear on its own. And, and I've always had that uh, ability and affinity to, to do that. So even in high school and then in college, so I always taught, directed, coached. When I was in Los Angeles working, I was also a coach uh, acting. I was also coaching at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. I also taught at the Actors Studio and the uh, Tracy Roberts Studio, the Globe Theater that was there. But the Beverly Hills Playhouse, I was there for about eight years. And I did it mostly, although I get paid, but I, I did it mostly because I just enjoyed it and, and had fun directing, coaching, and teaching. So back to my mother, whom I love to death. Every time that I would do a piece of theater, every time I would do a, a movie, a television show, every single time I would say, Mom, I'm doing a Columbo. And my mother would say, you know what? You should really be doing a soap opera. And no matter what I did, she would say, you should be doing a soap opera. You would be great <laughs> on a soap. So after being uh, an actor for all of those years, finally, finally, I got on a soap. I got a contract on a soap. And I thought my mother is going to go crazy. And so after four months on the soap, I decided to fly home. She lived in Florida. So I went to fly to Florida and um, just have a vacation and, and say hello. And, and when I got there, she was very excited to see me, obviously. But she didn't say anything about the soap. And I thought, well, she's just excited. So a day went by. She said nothing. The next morning at breakfast, she said nothing. And finally, I'm getting crazy now. And I said, Mom, what do you think? And she said, what do you mean? I said, I'm on a soap opera. She said, oh, sweetheart, that's nice. I said, that's nice? I said, since I'm six years old, you've been telling me I should be on a soap. I am now on a soap. What do you think? <laughs> and she said, she said, sweetheart, I, I haven't been able to watch. I said, mom, I've been on it for four months. What do you mean you haven't been able to watch? And she said, honey, you come on during my stories. And it hit me suddenly that I couldn't be on any soap. I had to be on her soap because <laughs> Her soap opera was on the same time as mine, and she couldn't watch me because of her soap opera. And at that moment, it hit me like a ton of bricks that all of these years, I've been acting for my mom. And again, I love her to death. She's awesome. She is awesome. But it just hit me like, you know what? I'm good at it. I'm making money at it. But this is not my passion. My passion is teaching and coaching and, and working with uh, people. So I decided at that moment that when that soap was over, I was done. I was done acting and I would just put all of my effort and energies into, uh, into uh, coaching. And the second I did it, it was like a floodgate. People just started to come to me. A lot of it had been because for eight years I had worked with so many high profile people through the Beverly Hills Playhouse that as soon as I said, all right, I'm open for business. You yes. know, as a, as a private coach. Uh, and so I just, I just started to get work immediately and I haven't looked back. And now I work with actors and anchors and talk show hosts and politicians and, and religious leaders and doctors and lawyers and athletes. And, and if it's on stage at a podium in front of a camera, 
whatever that is, I am called in to either fix it or enhance it or develop it or create it. Mm, love so it. That, <laughs> so that's as quickly as I could tell you that story. Yeah, that's great. Well, and you were on The Soap, Days of Our Lives, which uh, that's what I grew up watching. My mom watched it. And so, right. you know, like when I was growing up, we'd always have it on at 1230, you know. So right, right. Um, I, I watched you. Probably. You know, the, the, the thing about being on a soap at that time, I don't know now, it's been so many years, but... To stay on the soap, you have to have you had to have so many letters coming in from fans, and every letter represented something like a thousand people. So, the studio would actually count letters as they came in to find out how popular you were, and if you were popular, you wow. would remain. And so, uh, you know, I remember walking by a room one day and seeing a lot of these uh, elderly women in this room uh, writing letters and I, I didn't understand what was going on and I went to talk to my uh, the guy that I, I did a lot of my scenes with John Aniston who was Jennifer Aniston's father and he had been on the soap for years uh, and I went into John's uh, dressing room and I said John who are all those women down the hall in that room writing letters and he said oh he said um, that's Dee's coven and he meant Deidre Hall he said that's her coven and I said her coven what do you mean he said well these women write letters to all of these fans so that they will write back. Oh, that's and, awesome. <laughs> right? So because the only people, because I was a bad guy on the show, so the only people that wrote me were guys in prison. <laughs> <laughs> that was my fan base, oh, were, were prisoners. Awesome. <laughs> now, that's great. Now that you do, you know, all this coaching with just a wide variety of people, tell us about what do you think in terms of the role of mindset? How important is mindset in terms of, you know, all of these different areas in which people perform in? Well, it's, I mean, mindset is obviously very, very important. The interesting thing about it is that I found that very high profile people and people who are very successful tend to all have the same kind of mindset, although it's not like they're calling each other to figure out what that is. They just happen to have it. I remember when I first, uh, the first um, professional athlete I worked with, his name was Kenny Norton. He was the heavyweight champion of the world at the time. And he had just done a film called Mandingo. And right after this film, his management said, you know, Kenny, acting classes might not be a bad thing. So I started working with Kenny. And at the same time, he was, he was getting ready to defend his title. And he came in one day and he looked like he, somebody had just taken a bat and beaten on him. And I said, Kenny, where have you been? And he said, I, I was just sparring because uh, he was getting ready to defend his title. And I said, Kenny, I said, what's the hardest thing about winning? And I thought Kenny was going to say, well, you know, getting my head beaten in every day, not seeing my kids for weeks at a time. And Kenny said something I'll never forget. He just looked at me and he said, once you win, you're not allowed to lose. Hmm. And I thought, now that's pretty heady, especially coming from somebody like Kenny. And I said, well, then Kenny, why do you do it? And then Kenny did his Kenny thing. He said, hey, baby, it's what I do. I win. It's what I do. And that to me was the most telling thing because so many of these um, athletes especially have done something stellar early on in their career then they spend the rest of their life chasing after it but on the other hand it's who they are it's what they do they they win and that's there is no option <laughs> 
this is what you do in life, you win. And so, you know, I've worked with a lot of gold medalists over the years who have, uh, you know, once they won a gold medal, they wanted to become a, uh, a host of something or do commercials or do color commentary, whatever. And every time I've worked with a gold medalist over the years, I always ask them, how did you do something no one on the planet's ever done? How do you do that? I mean, you've never done it, but nobody's ever done it. How do you do that? And every single one of them, all these years has said basically the same thing to me, which is I had to be able to visualize it. I had to see it. I had to have basically already done it before I'd done it. Now they'd spent, <coughs> excuse me, a long time working and studying and crafting to get to a place where they can have that visualization. Right. But the, the idea, the arrogance of saying or thinking, I can do something no one on the planet's ever done. There's a little bit, it takes a little bit of arrogance to be able to say that you are that good. However, every winner I've known, every successful person I've worked with had enough of that to be able to say, yeah, I deserve to be here. I am good enough to do this. And so I think that that mindset, now that mindset comes with a lot of preparation and practice and rehearsal and, and you know, it, it, it's a lifetime of of mastery, uh, but at the same time, I think that 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 mindset has to exist. Does that make sense? Yes, and I think what's powerful about what you said, I wrote down a few notes, and one of them was like, you know, this confidence, this belief that you can do something that no one else has done. You might think that people are born just that way, right? But I also know that you can work to develop that confidence. One question I had follow up on, following up on that is, I think about. So you, you work with these world-class people and they maybe come into this, um, maybe they want to act or they want to start their own talk show or color commentate, like what you just said. How do you see them deal with that transition and what are things that they might struggle with that it's a new area? I think the biggest thing people struggle with across the board, no matter what, they, no matter what they're doing, when I'm seeing them, they're struggling with nerves. Okay. And it's fascinating because they're all at the top of the mark in what they do. Yeah. But many times what, when they're coming to me, it's because they're having to do something they haven't done before. And, you know, I've got a little formula which goes lack of control equals fear of failure equals nerves. Okay. So, so when you have uh, a lack of control or you feel like you don't have any control, especially for a lot of these people are very, uh, high energy, uh, a type personalities, uh, leaders, um, uh, a, a characters. And so most of them are control people. They, they love to have control. And so when they feel like they don't have it because of that, suddenly it creates a fear and the fear is a fear of failure. And that fear of failure then translates into uh, nerves. And so that's when they're coming to me and they've got these nerves. And just this last month, I worked with a NASCAR uh, driver. I worked with an NFL player. I worked with a, uh, a Grammy winner. I worked with a CEO of a top uh, telecommunications margin in the country. And I worked with uh, a, a nationally syndicated talk show host. And with all of these people, they, were, they came to me because they were having to do something they hadn't done before. Okay. And they were nervous about it. And so, you know, my job was to help them get out of their own way so that they could do that job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give us a little insight in, in terms of like, how do you do that? How do you help people get out of the way? Well, the, 
the interesting thing about uh, this idea of failure is that if you look at it as being a debilitating loss, and some people look at failure as that, if I fail, that means I've lost and it's debilitating. Interestingly enough, all of these people to do what they have done to become high profile professionals, in their profession, they didn't think about failure as a debilitating loss, but only as an opportunity. They all fell and just got right back up again. Uh, I'm working with this. I'm working with uh, uh, an NFL, uh, NFL player right now. Last last year, I went and saw a one of their practices, and you know the pre. I think you know this. The practices are crazy, right? Yeah. So, yeah. In a session, I'm sitting down with this guy in a session, and I said, "Man, before we get started, I said, man, you got to hate practice.'" He said, "No, I love practice." Now this guy's been playing ball for 20 years, right? And he's he's crazy good at what he does. And I said, you got to hate practice. He said, no, man, I love practice. I said, come on. He said, no, I do. I said, why? He said, because it's the only time I can fall on my butt. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is, I said, why is that important? He said, it's because falling on your butt is the only time you learn anything. He said, when I'm playing a game, I got to stay in my lane, man, because I got mouths to feed. He said, so, and now his lane is pretty big because he's been doing it for years, but still, you know, when he's playing, he's very careful, as good as he is, because, you know, he, he, he doesn't, he's got mouths to feed and, and he doesn't want to screw around. So he said, he said, practice is the only time I can really go to, to failure. So that teaches me what I can do and what I can't do. So he doesn't look at, you know, at that word or you know, any kind of fall as a loss, but only as a learning experience. Yeah. And, and so with uh, all of these folks, when they're coming to me, uh, especially they're doing things that they're not used to doing, one of the things that I've got to work with them on, and I work with a lot of uh, people that are just, you know, in, in, in their normal daily lives who have uh, a concern about uh, a first time, especially public speakers, a lot of public speakers who, again, have this fear which causes these nerves. And the idea of the biggest fears that we have in life are usually connected to things that are happening with us that we have no control over. A first date, an interview, public speaking. And it's all because during those times, we're worried about other people liking us. Yeah. Uh, am I good enough? Am I, am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Will they like me? Will they like me? And this thing about will they like me, you have no control over whether somebody likes you or not. Over a period of time, you might be able to get them to, but in, you know, in, a, in a situation where something is just there and it's the first time and you've got to get it done, worrying about someone liking you or worrying about will they like you, is it puts you in a place of no control. You have no control over that. And because you have no control, that's what causes the, the, that, the primal fear of failure, which then turns into nerves. So in all of those cases with all of these folks, what I, uh, what I do is get them to focus on the goal, not on the problem. I'm trying to get them to focus on someone else, not themselves. If it's the public speaker, uh, if it's the first date, if it's the interview, I'm trying to get them or I want to get them or I work with them to forget about who they are, forget about they've done all the prep they can before they walked into the situation. Once you're there, there's no more prep to be done. Once you're there, there's no more learning to be had. All you can do in that moment in time is put all of your focus on that other person and make it about them.
and it's not about you, it's about them. Mm. And if you can, if you can do that, a lot of that fear goes away. A lot of it dissipates. Right. And I'm thinking about the people that you're working with and even ways that I can feel really nervous. You know, uh, a few years ago, I was asked to uh, dance hip hop. Uh, have you seen like Dancing with the Stars on TV? Of course, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, I was asked to do this in my hometown to raise money for the American Red Cross. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't, Bill, I don't, I don't dance. <laughs> At one point, my husband told me that I would like dance like Eileen from Seinfeld, you know, like. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I don't dance. Um, but that's also what I was thinking a lot about is like, I don't dance. And when I have danced, you know, people have laughed at me, right? And, and I had so much anxiety because it was something I had never done before. And I thought about I'm freezing on stage and, you know, so I really had to get over that while I was dancing and I'm thinking of all the people that uh, you work with and it's like TV reporters and if they're going to like me or if I'm going to make a mistake or mess up, you know, or, or acting as well. So tell me a little bit more about when you said like put the focus on them over you. Um, do you mean them in the audience? Do you mean them, like let's say if you're a talk show host and you're interviewing someone, like tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, you know, for anchors and reporters and weathercasters, one of the things, certainly in all of these positions, they need to know their jobs really well. Prep, as I'm sure you know, is, is everything. It's, you know, 90% of the game is prep. Because once you're on the field, once you're doing the gig, you can't be thinking about technique. Mm -hmm. You know, there are two, par there are two parts to any, any craftsman whether it's acting or uh, being a politician or being a doctor, whatever it is, there are two parts. There is talent and there's technique. Talent's a God-given thing. You can't buy it. You can't create it. No, you can't. Nobody can give you talent. You either have it or you don't. Some people have a lot. Some people have a little. But I, I can't tell you the number of times over the years that parents have come to me and asked me to give their kids talent. Ah. And I can't, I can't do that. Uh, they, they, the kids have it. Now, what they don't have, what you're not born with, is technique. Technique is something you build along the way. And the more technique you have, the more it supports your talent. And the reason athletes, professional athletes, 80, I think it's 87%, 87% of an athlete's career is practice. The game is nothing to them. Because when they get on the field or in the ring or whatever, they, they can't be worried about technique. It's, right. They have to be able to just be in the moment, right? So, so you've got to have all of the technique. And, and, and certainly when I'm working with people, one of the things I do is try to assess where they're at in terms of their technique for the job that they're trying to do. And any holes that are missing or that need to be shored up, we make sure that we work on those the technical issues to get them up to snuff but then once they're on the field or once they're doing their job like i said a, a newscaster a reporter then we talk about all right who are you talking to who is your viewer forget about you now know how to do your jobs forget about that who is your viewer and for most local news stations uh, the viewer is a 42 year old woman with two kids Mm. It, it's it's uh, Martha who has two kids. One is in elementary school and one is in junior high. And once we start talking about who this woman is and what she cares about and why she's watching the local news, the more they know about her, when they're deciding how they're going to relate that story, it's got to be based on why would she care? Not 
if she would like them. Because it doesn't matter if Martha likes them. All that matters is, is that Martha listens to them and that Mar Martha gets what she needs to, to protect her family. So it's the same thing if you go to a doctor and your doctor talks to you about doctor's family and talks to you about a tennis game that doctor just had and things that are going on in that doctor's life, you don't care about any of that. <laughs> All you care about is, look, I came here for me, not for you, fix me. Uh, you know, if the doctor is pleasant as well, and if they have a sense of humor, that's great. But you didn't go there to be entertained. You went there to be healed. So when I'm working with uh, doctors, and I went, once had to go to the Cleveland Clinic because uh, those surgeons who are fantastic at what they do, they were getting into trouble because they weren't being nice to the uh, patient's grandmother. They were treating them well because they just wanted to go in, do their surgery, and leave. They didn't want to have those conversations. So to teach these folks that it's not about you, man. At that point, it's got to be about the person you're talking to. Uh, I just, you know, one of these, uh, as I said uh, earlier this month, I worked with a NASCAR driver who now wanted to do a color commentary okay. for, ra for races. So again, he was so concerned. How do I look? How do I sound? And I said, look, you're, not, you're behind a microphone. No one's really watching you. They're watching the race. So don't worry about how you look. And we can work about your sound uh, in, a, a, as you practice. But when you get on there, you got to be thinking about the people you're talking to. What do they care about? If you were talking to uh, a great friend at a bar and he was asking you questions about the race, how would you talk to him? What would you say? And really, that's a key issue in so many of these things is being able to take the, the onus off of who you are as an individual once you've learned everything you need to know and focus it on the people you're communicating to. Yeah, that's powerful, Bill. I'm thinking about speaking, right? And I do a lot of keynote speaking and public speaking. And, is it, and if you're thinking about yourself or what they think about you, you know, you can't connect with them. But if you're thinking about, oh, well, the, you know, these teachers are in the audience or these doctors are in the audience or that's who I want to connect with. If you're really thinking about the audience and you, you do have a better connection. So, yeah. And, and you know, that, that thing that they, they tell you sometimes, uh, if you're ever nervous, think about the audience uh, in uh, their underwear. Well, the only reason that works, if it does work, is because it, it puts your focus on them. You're taking your focus off of yourself and you're putting your focus on those people that are in the audience. So that's really why that, that saying exists. So, you know, when you do those speeches or people who are nervous about doing speeches, you know, I always tell them to see, you know, to see if they can get there a little ahead of time, meet the people they're going to be talking to, get to know some people so that when you get up and you start to talk, you've already got friendly faces in the audience that you can look at and that you can talk to and you can relate to. The more you know and understand the people that you're performing for, the less nervous uh, people get. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Bill, yeah. when you think about yeah. like your work as a performance coach with uh, singers, I remember seeing this picture with, with you and Lance Bass, right, from NSYNC. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But tell us about, you know, some of the singers that you work with, Grammy winners. Tell us how you might work with them. Well, for, for most singers, when they come to me, I don't need to teach them how to sing because at that point, they know how to sing. They know how to do their job. And I don't need to teach them really uh, about about the, the music because most often they've either written it or they've performed it many times. Many times they're coming to me because they don't know how to deal 
with the audience in the interim between songs, or sometimes it's uh, how to interpret a song or music that isn't theirs to begin with. And some of these performances too, it's, it's, it's how to deal with the public, whether it's being in interviews or being in social situations or seeing folks before or after a performance. So really I'm, I'm mostly dealing with a lot of these uh, performers on, listen, I've got a new show. I'm working with some new folks on stage. Take a look at this and make sure we want to see, make it, make sure it, it runs as smoothly as possible. What I try to do is keep performers away from saying things like, how you doing New York? How you doing Nashville? How you doing Chicago? You know, it's, it's like, that's just, it's forcing an audience to applaud doesn't help you. <laughs> you know, if the audience feels like you're, you're being, they're being asked to, to applaud for you, it, it doesn't help you. So it's working with them on, on how to uh, do these interstitials between their songs, uh, what to say, how to say it, how to connect with the audience. Mm. And, you know, every, every performer is different. So I look at who they are as individuals, who they are as songwriters and performers, and you know, one thing I'll say to a lot of them is, is a lot of performers that are fairly new, they perform as if they were songwriters, not as if they were stars. In other words, ah. they, they will perform the song, or they will, they'll play the song, they won't play the audience. And stars will play the audience because the song is the song. And if it's just about the song, just hand everybody a CD and go home. But people came there to see you and to connect with you and to have some communal event with you. It's about the music as well. So I'm not saying the music isn't important. It's very important. But it's like with a lot of uh, actors, you know, I will tell them that, you know, Shakespeare is fantastic, but, but I've seen a lot of bad actors do Shakespeare. It ain't Shakespeare anymore. So no matter how good the content is, you've got to be able to deliver. And a lot of that delivery has to do with, with how you connect with your, uh, with your audience. Awesome. Awesome. For sure. I, I hear what you're saying. I'm thinking about times where I've seen maybe speakers perform and then there was no connection or musicians that just played the song but didn't connect. So, right. what were, what, Bill, what would some of your top tips be in terms of connecting with the audience and how you might do that as an entertainer? Well, I, I think that you have to put yourself in there place and decide why do they the interesting thing about branding is that great branding is usually not about the product great branding is about the uh, consumer right yeah so so in other words uh, burger king doesn't tell you how they make hamburgers because you already know how a hamburger's made so they don't waste time on that what they do is they tell you if you come to our place you can have it your way and Disney doesn't tell you about all of their rides. It's, just, it's a theme park. And so everybody knows what a theme park is, and a ride is a ride. But Disney says, look, if you come to our theme park, your dreams will come true. And, you know, Nike says uh, they don't tell you about sneakers and, and, and shorts. They say you can do anything if you wear our stuff. Just do mm -hmm. it. So whenever uh, you're branding, whether it's real product or whether it is your uh, singing, Whatever it is, you have to first figure out what does your audience need? What does the consumer need that uh, from your product? What do they get from it? Because that's what I have to give them. 
is in terms of my connection with them. I have to make sure that they get that. With a lot of country stars, with a lot of country singers, it's not just about the music. It's a real, you know, most country uh, fans need that connection with the performer. And if they yeah. have that connection, if they really love that performer, you know, some of the songs might not be as good as others, but man, they will, they will consume anything that performer does because they love that performer. And so to understand that people really, because they've heard everything, there isn't anything anyone hasn't heard now. You know, it's, it's, we, we've, you get numb to all of the information that we get. Sure. So the, the, what, what really uh, drives us and, and the things that we have affinity for are the things that hit us either emotionally or uh, spiritually or uh, visually, but not academically. So we need to make sure that when we're communicating with people, uh, if we're speaking, if we're communicating with them, that we're using words that hit our audience visually or emotionally or viscerally. If we're performing, you know, music and we understand our audience, uh, you know, you have to read the room. I mean, there's some audiences are different than others. Some cities are different than others. So you have to kind of know what you're walking into and you want to make sure that you're making that kind of a connection. Yeah. Um, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Super great. Uh, Bill, one question that I always ask everybody. So I'd like your, your, your answer to this. And I think about your bio, you know, for 30 years, motivational speaker, acting, writing, directing, uh, performance coach, you have so much experience. And so I think people might think, well, you know, Bill's got it all figured out, but I'd like for you to tell us about a time where, you know, that you failed and what you learned from it, for just to help us gain perspective, but also realize you're human too. <laughs> Everybody is, right? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if you're going to like this answer or not, but it's, it's the only answer I have. I, I've never... I've certainly done things that I haven't been good at, or I've realized that, you know, this isn't the way to go, or I've certainly had goals that I didn't, didn't obtain, but I, I've never considered a failure as a loss, you know, or I've never considered that word as a debilitating loss. I've just always considered it a, 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 an opportunity. In other words, I, I, you know, I would, I'll, I will go as far as I can with something and realize, you know what, I'm not good at this. <laughs> So it's not that I failed at it. I just learned something. I, you know what? I love the story about uh, Thomas Edison. I don't know if you know the story where he, it took him 98, I think it was 98 times, 97, 98 times to create a light bulb. They tried 98 times and each time it didn't work. And what they finally did it, instead of the journalist asking him, so what does it feel like to create the light bulb? This journalist did what most journalists do and said, how did it feel to fail 97 times? Yeah. And Edison said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you failed 97 times at making a light bulb. And Edison said, no, I didn't. He said, I learned, I learned 97 ways not to make a light bulb, but I didn't fail because we've got a light bulb. So, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, a couple weeks ago, a, a good friend of mine asked me to speak to his daughter because she wanted to be an actor. She wants to be an actor and, uh, she's 22 and she hasn't left home. 
and he doesn't understand it, but he's, he's a father and he's, you know, parents, it's hard for kids and parents to talk to each other about those kinds of things. So I said, yeah, fine. I'd sit down with her. So I sat down with her. I said, so what's going on? And she says, well, I want to be an actor. I said, okay. And she lives in uh, uh, Dallas. And I said, okay. I said, so what's the problem? She says, well, and she, she's, uh, goes to acting classes and she's done a couple of little parts and things and she's talented. And I said, I said, what's the problem? And why, why don't you go leave Dallas and go to wherever you need to go to become an actor, which would be either Los Angeles or New York or Atlanta, someplace that has a lot of, uh, a lot of that stuff going on. And she said, what if it doesn't work out? She yeah. said, what if I, what if I fail? And it, it was a, a little heartbreaking only because she's the daughter of a very good friend of mine. But it's something that I have heard over and over and over again all these years is that what if it doesn't work out? What if I fail? And so many people don't create goals because they're afraid as soon as they create it, what if they fail? What if they, they don't reach the goal? And what I've learned all of these years is that every high profile professional that I've ever worked with, every successful person, and I ask them all when I work with them, I say, I'll always ask them, is this what you wanted to do when you started out? Yeah. And nobody has ever said to me in 30 years, yes, this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> nobody. It was always, no, I actually wanted to do that. Or actually I was on that path. And, and so, I, and then I've asked, well, so did you fail? And they went, are, are you kidding? Look where I'm at. And so what I've learned and what I told her is creating goals. It's not about, it's not about succeeding at that goal. The success is not about reaching that goal. The success is about creating a goal to put you on a path because once you're on that path, other things will come to you, will present themselves to you that many times will be better opportunities than the goal that you were going for. And because you were on that path, you will find other things that are potentially better. Now, if you, they're not better, if you don't want them, you'll still uh, stay on that path and you'll still go for that goal. But the idea is, is that if you never have the goal, you never get on the path. And if you never get on the path, you do nothing in your life. Yeah. And so what I was telling her is, is that, look, you've got to go. You've got to create a goal and get on the path. Mastery, I, I had a sensei uh, that used to uh, say to me that, um, well, one thing he always used to like to say is that there is no failure. There's only embarrassment. Ah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right? But, you know, what, what he really did teach me is that mastery is, is the journey. It's not a destination. There is no... There is no nirvana. You know, there is no place where you finally get there and you go, okay, I'm done. It just doesn't exist. You know, there's always something new. You know, when we were in high school, it was always about getting to college. When we're in college, it's about getting that first job. When we get that first job, it's about getting that second job. And it just continues. So, um, you know, there have been shows that I've done that, that uh, uh, were not good. There have been things that I've attempted in my life that I realized, you know, I'm just not good at that. I'm not a good gambler. I'd like to be, <laughs> but, but if I go to Vegas, I leave empty handed, right? Because I'm just not a great gambler, but it's not, that's not a failure. I just learned 
how, uh, you know, I, that there's something that I'm just not good at and, and to, to put my energies into other things. I appreciate that answer because I think that's really important. And when, even when you started the interview, we were talking about, you know, these world-class athletes and the NFL athlete you were talking about at practice. And one thing you said is what separates the, the elite is really that they don't see failure as a, de- a debilitating loss, right? Right. Um, exactly. And so I appreciate that you answered that way because I think it's consistent, but also what you said about that success is not actually about reaching that goal. It's more about what you find about yourself or about what you want or your passion along the way. It's about being, it's success is being on a path. I mean, that's, that's if, if you're on a path towards a goal, whether you reach that goal or not, that's not the point. The point is, is being on the path and moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, success is not about falling down because we all fall. Everybody falls. It's not about that. It's about getting up. That success is all about recovery. It's not about the fall. Right. Everybody's always worried about the fall and because they're worried about the fall, they never try. And the point is, is you're going to fall. We all fall. So stop worrying about it because guess what? It's going to happen. Right. <laughs> the point is, is the, the, you know, the success is getting up and either try again or realize, you know what? I just learned something about myself. This isn't for me. But what I did also learn in being on this little path is this other thing over here uh, is interesting for, to me. And then now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, I was in Los Angeles. I lived in LA for, for uh, 15 years and I wanted to learn how to inline skate. You know, there's inline skates. And so I, I go out and we're, we're on concrete in, in, in uh, Malibu. In, excuse me, in Venice, on Venice Beach, and I'm on these skates, and I'm this. I've got a professional instructor there, and he's going to teach me how to uh, how to inline skate. So I'm standing there on these skates, and I got tons of padding on. I've got pads on my knees, I got pads on my arms, I got pads everywhere. And the guy says, uh, "Well, it looks like you're uh, it looks like uh, you're 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 afraid to fall." And I said, "I am afraid to fall." He said, "Good." He said, "The first thing we're going to do before we move on is you're going to fall." That's awesome. He said, I need you to fall. I said, I'm not understanding you. He said, fall on your knees. I said, but I don't want to fall on my my knees. He said, look, we can't go any further with this with this uh, lesson unless you fall. So it's up to you. We can stop right here or um, fall on your knees and then we can go on from here. Now he was one of the best uh, skaters in in that arena around. And I thought, I can't, I can't leave this and tell people (laughs) that I, you know, that I left. And so I went, all right. So I fell on my knees and because I had those pads on my knees, nothing happened. I didn't feel it. And I went, Hey, and he looked at me and he said, are we good? I said, yeah. He said, so, so what did falling do? I said, it didn't do anything. He said, great. All right, now let's skate. Uh, I love it. Great story. Great story. Right? Once the realization that falling didn't really matter, it was going to be fine. Suddenly I learned how to skate in half the time it would have taken me. Otherwise, had I been nervous about falling. Yeah. And maybe the whole time kind of tensed up or held yourself back because you're so worried about falling. So exactly. Love it. Exactly. So, Bill, I know yeah. you have a book coming out next month, The Anchor, Reporter, um, and Weathercaster Walk Into a Bar. Tell us about that and the other books that you have. 
Uh, the, uh, yeah, the book that's coming out is, yes, a, an anchor reporter and a weathercaster walk into a bar. I've, uh, in, in, in all of these years, I've spent a lot of time working in uh, local television stations and also uh, cable news networks, uh, CNN, uh, uh, Fox, th those kinds of stations. But a lot of these local uh, newscasters especially, and all of the work that I've done with them on communicating so that they can create uh, a loyalty amongst their listeners and to be compelling with their listeners. All of those concepts I've put into this book because those same concepts work for anyone who wants to be a better communicator and wants to be more compelling and wants to create uh, a loyalty with their listeners uh, with their staff, with their customers, what, whatever. So that, that book's uh, uh, coming out next month. Uh, I also, the last book I wrote was called Coffee with Cactus, and those are just inspirational thoughts that you can read every day to get you uh, in, in the mood or to have you uh, to uh, have, have a great attitude for the day. And then the book before that was uh, It's Not What You Say, which is uh, just uh, communication concepts for uh, all of the different fields that I've worked in. And you can get all of those on Amazon. And I sound like a commercial now. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's great. I asked you that question. So, and I know you can learn more about uh, his performance coaching at cacmis.com. Would you just, uh, is there any other ways that we can reach out to you, Bill? Gosh, uh, cactmus.com is it. Everything that you would need is, is there, uh, whether it's um, um, my, my uh, speaker's agents is, is uh, you can get that, uh, get that information from that website as well. So, uh, Sindra, you know, I really appreciate uh, your uh, podcast. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome. And thank you so much for your wisdom today, Bill. Uh, here's some things that I got from the interview and people always like when I summarize it at the end, because I think it's good where, you know, people are listening and maybe listening on the go or listening while they work out. Right. So it's nice sure. to have a, a little bit of a summary, but at the beginning about how the, the, the most elite don't see failure as a debilitating loss that they really kind of, you know, fall like your inline skating story, they fall and then just get back up. I also appreciated when you're talking about nerves and people who are so nervous that, you know, that we can get in our own head about people liking us, but instead really focusing on the audience and what do they care about? Uh, how can we make a connection uh, with them and play the, to the audience instead of just kind of play the song or, you know, play to us? So I really appreciated that. And then at the end, you talked about how success is not actually about reaching the goal but it's more about a path and finding the things that are most interesting to you and that you're passionate about. So Bill, thank you so much for your time and your energy today. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at mentally underscore strong. For more inspiration and to receive Syndra's free weekly videos, check out drsyndra.com.